Hey there, Reasonable Doubts listener. This is Jeremy from the podcast. My voice has been digitally altered to make it sound more sexy. Mm-hmm. You know the Doubtcaster's one desire is to satisfy your mind. So this Valentine's Day, we invite you to light some candles, slip into something a little more comfortable, and enjoy this lecture entitled Mate Choice and Sex, How to Get into Someone's Genes. The speaker is Dr. Greg Forbes, professor of biology at Grand Rapids Community College and a former editor of Skeptic Magazine. Give it a listen. We know you'll love every minute. But seriously, don't you think what we got here is too special to keep all to ourselves? If you enjoy Reasonable Doubts, consider spreading the love by telling a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or leave us a comment at doubtcast.org. Well, that's enough foreplay. Special thanks to Dr. Forbes for sharing this lecture. And special thanks to you, the listener, for making it all worthwhile. Well, welcome for coming to tonight on Valentine's Day, which means that you're all very secure in your relationships or you have no one in your life. So it's one of the two, so thank you. You know, we're all the loners here tonight. And what I want to try and do is, is introduce yourself. And how did we make our mate choices? Did we, did we make a good call? Some of you folks have been married for ages in here. Others are wondering why you've been married for ages. Others wonder whether you should get married for ages. But how do we make those decisions? You know, sometimes we make good calls. Sometimes we make bad calls. And a lot of us think that, of course, we're acting with our conscious thought ability, completely independent of any influences of our genome. Really? Okay. Well, that's great. Take all the credit if you make the good choice. But if you make the bad choice, I'm giving you an out tonight, okay? You say, I'm a victim of my genes, okay? I can't, I'm swimming in a dirty gene pool, and I can't be responsible for my decisions. So we're going to take a look at what does sex have to do with evolution? Sex is all about evolution. Evolution is all about sex, so we'll find out how that works. A word of caution about the ground rules for tonight's presentation. All I gave a little of them is that I'm not responsible for what comes out of my mouth tonight. And also, by what criteria do we select our mates? Which a lot of people wonder, gee, how did I get to where I am today with this wonderful relationship? How did I make such a stellar choice to allow my life to be so full of bliss? We'll take a look at what are those criteria. <laughs> and then we're going to take a look at mating systems and overview. There's more than one way to skin a cat, as the saying goes, is that we today in today's society, we tend to, to have one type of mating system that prevails. But we need to take a look at mating systems across higher vertebrates and across societies other than Western societies. We want to take a look at, do human polygynist systems with multiple female mates, do they exist for pleasure of the male or procreation? Should we just take a survey of the women in the audience right now? Okay, but, but stick with me here, okay? Stick with me. So we'll come and answer that question for you. And then we're going to take a look at a cost-benefit analysis of mating systems, right? At some point, you have to decide from an evolutionary perspective, is this all worth it, okay? Is this really worth doing this? Then we need to look at the four commandments of mating systems, which we'll all learn in mantra style before we leave tonight. And then we want to ask the big question tonight, is did humans evolve as polygamous? Yeah, we'll take a look at that. And then we have a little evolutionary epilogue. What does it all mean at the end? But first, the precursor, the prologue. When we talk about, you know, kind of Evolution 101 with the Discovery chance, uh, Channel and the fin fur and feather flicks on TV, you're always told that evolution is all about survival of the fittest. No, 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 no. Natural selection and therefore evolution 
is not about survival of the fittest, it's about reproduction of the fittest. Because it doesn't matter how stellar you are in your time on this planet if you don't produce viable, reproducing offspring. Think about that. You all sit here today with a phenomenal responsibility in your gonads. Now, nobody's probably told you that before, have they, okay? I mean, as you sit here, what do you hold? You sit here as a result of four and a half million years of correct decisions by your hominid ancestors, right? Every one of your ancestors made the right choice, which is why you're here today. So if you choose the wrong mate to carry on your genes, too bad, so sad, sayonara, there go your genes. Your loins have a heavy responsibility, right? You just can't cast your gametes randomly. You have to know what you're doing. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, is how do I know when I'm doing that correctly? But first, a word of caution here. Is that just because the behaviors we discussed tonight may be natural, doesn't necessarily mean they should be embraced as socially or morally acceptable. So when we talk about maybe, for instance, I'll just say the benefits of adultery. This isn't Forbes' suggestion that you all go sleep around before you get home tonight, okay? So just because it's natural doesn't mean necessarily you want to do it. And the flip side of that coin is we also shouldn't necessarily reject a natural behavior because it's morally unacceptable, right? There are two sides to that coin. Let's look at maybe why we do things, whether we decide we should be doing it or not, but also not just reject them wholeheartedly. So first we need to talk about sexual selection. Charles Darwin, of course, wrote this classic book on unnatural selection, evolution by means of natural selection. He followed up later on with a book on sexual selection. And we're going to do the sexual selection 101 tonight. There's far more detail than we can ever do in the time we have tonight. But we're going to do the Reader's Digest condensed version, the cliff notes of sexual selection tonight. So you can all go home and have sex tonight. Okay? So what we're looking at here is what's sexual selection? The selection for desirable characteristics in a mate. You say, well, what are those desirable characteristics? That's what we're going to look at. But we're going to try and frame things in the context of humans tonight, but we always have to go back and look at other animals in that venue before we try and compare it to, to humans, because we can learn a lot from those uncluttered societal relationships of animals. When we try and look at humans, there's a lot of baggage to try and examine through. So we look at all different types of animals, and we see that different types of animals have different things they consider to be desirable. But let's take a look from an animal and a human context. The first thing we look at is what's called apparent health. Right? When we try and choose our mates, we try and choose some that are apparently healthy. Now, why do you want to do that? Because if you're going to choose a mate to carry on your genes next generation, don't you want a good vehicle that's genetically sound to do that? I always ask my students, I say, okay, students, when's the last time that you decided, I'm tired of dating good-looking people. I want to date someone who has pustules. I want halitosis. I want liaisons. I want hair falling out. I want deformations. I want scabies. That's what I'm after. That's who I'm going to date. No, they won't do a mercy date. How come? Because they're scared to death it'll result in a mercy breeding, right? So you say, well, I do have desirable characteristics. What are those that I'm looking for to mate? We look for apparent health, because if someone has all their teeth, if they don't have oozing pustules, if they have their hair, if they have symmetry and good skin tone, is this probably not a reasonable bet that this is the good genetic vehicle to pass your genes on? Because here's what. Because when we reproduce with somebody, it's a roll of the genetic dice, isn't it? Because what do you know about that person, especially if you reproduce at whatever, 18, 19, 20, 21? You decide to have kids, and then you find out that your partner has some terrible disease that may prevent your children from living long enough to reproduce. Is that a good genetic call? No. But what can you do? Now, 15 years from now, it may be a little different. Right now, to do your individual genome costs about $100,000. 
we're hoping within 10 to 15 years, it'll be down to the four or five, six thousand dollar thing. Wouldn't that be cool? And you get, just to get, you can get it down to your little PDAs. You go, honey, in that intimate moment, I think that, that we should reproduce. But first, the cheek cell. You put it in your little PDA, you go, whoa, chromosome 14, I'm a little worried, I'm out of here, right? But until that happens, it's a roll of the genetic dice, right? So you go for the best part. You go, you know, this person looks pretty healthy. They have all their teeth. I'm willing to do the genetic gamble. So we look at apparent health. And, and what is that apparent health? Different animals do it different ways. We have this guy right here, which is a magnificent frigate bird. Is that the male or the female? That's the male, because who else would make an ass out of themselves like this to attract a female, right? So this is a magnificent frigate bird. And that big thing's called a gular sac. And the bigger it is and the redder it is, sexier the ladies find it. Well, if you've got a big gular sac, they're just all ready to nest with you, okay? Well, how come? Because if you have a big red gular sac, you're healthy. You're ridden with testosterone. Are you a good genetic package to mate with? Yeah. You look over here at this guy, which is called a chameleon. Chameleons, reptiles, their, their color is an artifact of diet. So if you can exploit your environment and get all the nutrients you need, are you going to have nice shiny skin? Sure. So this is who we breed with. How about peacocks, okay? If you think of peacocks, peacocks are the male version of peafowl, right? So imagine if we have, for instance, you, you, you wind up with, okay, guys, you're going to be our peacocks tonight. Who wants to be the skanky peacock? Okay, Greg, way to go. Okay, Greg's going to be our skanky peacock, okay? So he's, he's this, he spreads this, it's called a train. He spreads his little tail feathers, a train, and he's got little brown feathers. He's got a couple little eye spots. They're blinking, okay? Your train's about three feet long. You, on the other hand, crumb de la crème of the peacock world. You spread your tail feathers. You have 150 eye spots. You've got this long train. And you guys go into these things called leks, where the males get together and display, and all the ladies hang out in the forest go, check him out. Look at those spots. He's looking good, okay? And so it turns out you both get lucky, because eventually, right, it's, it's, it's closing time at the peacock bar. Eventually, someone's going to reproduce with you. But you get all the babes, because they like, they like the nice blue peacocks. And that's a good thing. Because bird color many times is determined by diet also. You guys live in the same forest together, but you couldn't find a beetle if your life depended on it. And therefore, you have these skanky brown colors. You can find a beetle under every rock. You have these beautiful feathers. Ladies, you now need to decide who you want to reproduce with. You want blue or brown? Blue. Who do you want? Brown. Bad choice. Okay? Because it turns out, when you reproduce with the blue guy, is there a chance your offspring will also know how to find food in the forest? Yes. Well, they might live long enough to pass on the traits for finding for it. Yes. And you just had this genetic predeposition for brown birds. Bad, bad, bad choice. Okay. And so you produce offspring that are kind of skanky and brown. Will they probably live long enough to pass on your genes? Maybe not. Was brown a good choice? No. What happens to the gene in the population for females that choose brown? Too bad, so sad. Sayonara. Did you know this whole thing about protein in beetles? No, you just happen to know you like brown guys. Bad choice. So eventually females learn to choose who? The blue guys. Right? The blue guys. And it goes on with that. And we have, we take a look at, for instance, in peacocks. You know, this has been studied in someone's dissertation. We found out, guys, the number of spots you have, the number of eye spots you have, it just drives those peahens crazy. Okay? Look at this. This is the number of mates you have as the number of eye spots increase. <laughs> so there's something to be said. So you, my man, I'm sorry. You know, we love you, but you couldn't find a beetle if your life depended on it. You don't have enough extra protein to push any eye spots. So even looking at apparent health, what are some things that we see that go across all cultures? This has been studied to death since 
fact, one of the first books, Desmond Moore's The Naked Ape, back in 1967 or something like that, we thought, what is it that we had humans find attractive in other humans? And each societies are very specific. However, there are some generalities that go across almost all cultures. Some of those that are specific but almost go across all cultures are hip-to-waist ratios, right? So men prefer what? Women with large waist to hips or small waist to hips? Small waist. And then we also have hip-to-shoulder ratios. Men, or women prefer what? Men with broad shoulders compared to hip or small shoulders? Broad. Right? And that goes across almost all cultures, but not all. So we're going to take a look here. And what are some characteristics that go across all cultures? So we're going to take a look at symmetry in the skeleton. Okay, Symmetry in the skeleton. Now, we take a look at some people we consider to be really good looking. We take a look, you know, we Holly Berry, we have Shania, excuse me. I'm back now. Okay, we have Faith, we have Elvis, you know, we have all the rest up here. These are very, very symmetrical faces, aren't they? Because if you take the right face of, for instance, you know, um, Cindy there in the center, and we digitally make a copy of it, but we, we match it to the other side, so basically we're taking the right side, we reverse it, you get the same face because they're symmetrical. The right is the left-hand side. In virtually all cultures studied, humans look for symmetry. You go, why? Because for a, there are a variety, at this point, hypotheses on this, but vertebrates are what we call bilaterally symmetrical. When the embryo is developing, right half should develop exactly as the left half. If that isn't the case, there's something wrong embryologically that might expose you to maladies later on in life. So those who decided to choose asymmetrical brown peacocks, okay, might have been a bad call, okay? Symmetrical blue peacocks, good call. So we see this across all societies. Symmetry becomes really, really important. Well, what's asymmetrical look like? <laughs> there you go. Okay. This is, this is Lyle, okay? Lyle Lovett and then Maria Shriver, okay? Now, Lyle Lovett, many years ago, probably I'm circa like 96, 7, Newsweek had on their cover article, what, what, what do humans find attractive in each other? They did something really cool. They took a picture of Lyle Lovett, and so what they did is they took this half of his face, and then they flipped it over to here. And then you compared the new Lyle Lovett compared to this person. Was it the same person? No, you couldn't even recognize him. Then they took the right side, flipped it to the left side, and compared it to the other two. Were these three people even remotely the same? No, because the face is so asymmetrical. So in studies of an across culture, if you put this, if you put Lyle up there next to Brad Pitt, even at the same age, both standing there tan and naked, who are they going to go for? Brad. Okay. You take a look at Mariah, a beautiful uh, uh, Mariah Shriver, Maria Shriver, a beautiful woman, but not symmetrical. They did the same thing in the Newsweek article, scanned her face, flipped it over, and these were completely separate people. Now, are you going to say, well, I don't want you because your nose is a little tweaked? Not necessarily. But we do see that this is something that actually exists across all cultures. It's really pretty amazing. And we believe it has to go back with that idea of embryologic development because we're supposed to be bilaterally symmetrical. So if something went wrong in the embryo, could it be a viral body? Could it be an aberrant protein that may have caused that? Skin, hair, and coloration also becomes very, uh, very probable as the primary deciding factor across virtually all cultures. Because you say, okay, I have a choice of somebody who has lesions on their skin versus clear skin. Virtually across all societies, this is something we look for, skin and hair condition. I come because this is an artifact of your physiology. When any of us feel ill, take a look at the color of our skin. Take a look at the texture of our skin. Take a look at our hair. It changes, doesn't it? I mean, how about when you watch those hair ads on TV? You know, they still have Heather Locklear doing the hair ad. 
You notice Heather Locklear turns and throws her hair up. Is that Heather's hair? No, it's probably some 11-year-old girl, okay? Because what happens to all of our hair as we get older? It dries out, right? And, and some of us even forget where we put it. And, and it, it starts to break. So it's a sign of, of health. We know that. It's directly related to metabolism. So this is one of the things that we tend to look at. Here's a great study that was done just earlier this year. They had captive macaque monkeys, females that were just had pent-up sexual energy, and they trained them to go to the monitor every day and look at pictures of other macaques. And they would actually begin to, when they found a macaque that was attractive, they'd become aroused. They'd start masturbating. They'd start fondling themselves. They'd start, you know, doing monkey porn or whatever. So they're scattered. So then they said, okay, let's go ahead and now look at different images and see which of the images are most appealing to the females. And they had all the gradations of color of the male's face and which one is more, more appealing to the female monkeys? B. Exactly. Because why? His flesh is red. Let's go back. What's the difference between A and B? It's flushed, isn't it? So congratulations, your monkeys. Okay? You have the same sexual screening process as a primate in a zoo fondling itself. Okay? But this makes sense, right? Now, this, is, of course, works in, and not only fair-skinned individuals, but darker-skinned individuals, because that flushing is a sign of what? Quality, circulatory patterns, and may be a good indication in our evolutionary history of here's a person with good circulation, possibly a good immune system. And we see this across all cultures. Here's another thing, access to resources. We look for apparent health. Once we've said, okay, your health looks good, then we say access to resources, including the power to get those resources. If you don't own them right now, can you get them? That's really important. Let's look at this guy right here. Red-winged blackbird. They thought all night on what to name that bird. So we have them all over. They're all across the United States. And what they do, of course, they're marsh birds. So they go to the marsh, and the male gets there early, and he finds a spot. He sits up there, and he sings. If you've ever lived next to a marsh and heard these guys, like an hour before sunset or sunrise, two hours, and they just go all day long. Why is he singing all day long to the females? I have apparent health, right? I can sing. You try it. When you go home in the shower, just go for an hour straight. See how it feels. These guys are doing that all day long. At the same time, see these red feathers called epaulets? They display them all day long. If you have apparent health, can you sing all day long? Yes. And the healthier you are, do you have red epaulets or kind of crummy pink? Red. Go look at the red-winged blackbird that set up housekeeping on the ditch on the side of the Kmart parking lot. It's out there going, and it has these faded pink epaulets going, even the bar closing time probably isn't going to help him. So the females come by and say, cool, you're healthy. You met the first criteria. But when that bird does that on this cattail, he goes to the next one, the next one, the next one, and comes full circle and does the same thing all day long. I take my students, we go out and we study this. He does the same circle. What's he saying? This is my what? Territory. If you breed with me, stud muffin of the bird world, not only do you get me, but you get the swamp. Okay? And is this good? Sure, because these are resources for the offspring, right? So this makes a good decision on the female's perspective. Say, you have apparent health now. What can you give me and my kids? Doesn't it make all the sense in the world? Absolutely. It's a wise decision. It's a wise evolutionary decision. Because if your goal is to pass on your genes to the next generation successfully, you want not only a healthy gene carrier, but you also want to make sure the resources are there for your family. Here's a great quote from Aristotle Onassis. If women did not exist, didn't exist, all the money in the world would have no meaning. Right? right? And it played out okay for him, didn't it? Okay? So 
Because he recognizes that because he has all the choice, right? He had apparent health and he had access to resources. Is this a good genetic basket to put your eggs in? Could be, right? We see virtually across all cultures is that women traditionally look for younger males or older males? Older males. Males traditionally look for older women or younger women? Younger women across almost all cultures because, once again, there are always exceptions to the rule, so save the emails, okay? Okay, remember the disclaimer, okay? So there are always exceptions to the rule, but would we not feel safe in saying that, that, that it kind of makes sense? Because if you're concerned that you're only able to produce a small amount of children at one time as a female versus a male which can father a bunch of children, don't you want to make sure that those children have access to resources? And who's more likely to provide that? You can even take it out of a human context. Look in primates, look in horses. I mean, look at so many different animals. It could be, not always, an older male. What might the male be looking for in a younger female from an evolutionary perspective? Fertility. Absolutely. And we see this across all cultures. Now, the win-win you can have sometimes here is that what happens if you're lucky enough to get access to resources and then later on get the stud muffin? Okay? It's the evolutionary win-win, and this is what we're going to be talking about a little bit later on tonight. So what else? We also look at sexual selection not because of just apparent health and access to resources, but avoidance of inbreeding. We call it... <laughs> I'm not going to mention any states. Okay? So, so, so I'll get emails, okay? But... What you try and do is avoid reproducing with close kin, right? Now, a lot of people who aren't biologists think, well, if you reproduce with your cousin, you wind up with two-headed children. Nonsense, okay? You just increase the likelihood of an undesirable recessive trait coming out. If you have a squeaky clean gene pool, run with it, okay? But otherwise, but you de... <laughs> but you, you want me to write you a note, okay? Yeah, I've been looking at my sister, and she's... Okay, anyway, so... Okay, so what this means is that if you be close to your family, you're not very diverse, Right? You want to get as far away from your immediate family as possible to increase the likelihood of unique and novel gene recombinations in your offspring. Doesn't that make good evolutionary sense? If you keep cloning close to your family, reproducing family members, or let's take it even out of the human context, what happens when the environment changes and all your family is genetically almost identical? Too bad, so sad, sayonara. You're out of the gene pool, aren't you? Okay. So we see this in a lot of different animals. In fact, there's something that I won't bore you with called major histocompatibility complexes. They're little, little, little surface structures on the, the uh, surface of cell membranes that prevent, in the case of sticklebacks, a type of fish, fertilization from occurring. So if the male reproduces with the female who's too closely related, will fertilization occur? No. It's nature's way going, no, 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 no. Second cousin, no can do. Let's try fifth cousin, okay? Pretty interesting. And this is why, of course, Michigan, as you probably know, is one of the few states where it's still illegal to marry your cousin. It really is, okay? This is a study that was just published. What they did was first take this group of pictures, and university students were asked to try, and actually they were given a whole series of males to choose from. And they said, choose two of these males that are closest to being equal in attractiveness. These are the two that were chosen. There are huge numbers. So they said, well, A and B are, are pretty close compared to all the other options. I didn't give you the other options. This was published actually last month. So then they then went back to another group of students, same, same age, same class, same everything, and gave them this picture. And overwhelmingly chose what? A or B? A. How come? Because she's looking at them. Because we choose based upon attractiveness of the mate to others. 
We're lazy genetically, my God. Well, I could evaluate attractiveness. I, I could evaluate apparent health. But hell, she thinks he's good enough, so I'll go for it. And this is what happened in every one of the samples. It didn't matter. And they, could, they switched her and turned her the other way, and then B became more attractive. Okay, so, so ladies, so guys, when you're trying to hit someone in the bar, hire a woman just to look at you in the bar, okay? Okay? Just to look at you. You'll get lucky every time, okay? Okay. So attractiveness of the mate to others. Misconception moment for you. Humans don't select their mates based upon apparent health and access to resources. I have a lot of my, my young college students say this, and they go, well, you know, Dr. Forbes, I know what you're saying, and I understand that, and that's fine for monkeys and stuff, but, but I'm different. I actually choose my mates based upon their personality, their sensitivity, their devotion to a, a long-term relationship, and the ability to put the toilet seat down. Oh, yeah, have another margarita. <laughs> because they first have to pass test number one, right? We all have a spectrum of which we're willing to accept. As long as you fall in the spectrum, ah, you've got half your teeth, okay? You've got half an ear. That's good, okay? You qualify. Now we'll go to access to resources. But the first stop in every study is always what? It's apparent health. It's the wisest evolutionary decision to make sure that that gene sequence is a good vehicle for your next generation. And I always say, okay, ladies, let me put it this way, okay? Here's your homework assignment, I say. I'm going to send you home with a guy tonight, okay? It turns out they're twin brothers, okay? They're twin brothers, but one of them's driving an 82 Geo Metro with one headlight. The other one's driving a 2007 Ferrari. Quick, who are you going to go home with? Come on, come on, come on! The Ferrari! Oh, how materialistic you are, okay? Yeah, and you maybe get one go, I go home with the guy at the Geo Metro. I go, why is that? Well, maybe he's rich and he's just trying to get in touch with his basic... Yeah, you run with that girl, okay? Yeah, Okay. <laughs> So what's our ultimate goal here of all reproduction? Well, all reproduction, yes, we can say from a social standpoint, it's long-term bonding and et cetera, et cetera. But let's go and look at this from an evolution perspective. Let's continue one's genes in the gene pool. And one of the classic books by uh, uh, Richard Dawkins that many of you have read is The Selfish Gene, which will turn your way of thinking upside down. And I know most, of the, a lot of the group in here has read that book. One of the best Dawkins books, you just, you look at your whole, what you thought was free choice differently after that. <laughs> I am the master of my universe. Who said that? Your genes. Okay? So you might hear, what's our goal here? To replicate those genes. In fact, Dawkins' thesis is basically is that we exist thinking we have self-control, but the reality, who's telling us we have self-control? It's our genes, right? You say, I selected this woman, this male, because I love him or her. Who told you to do that? Your genes, because it met the genetic criteria, apparent health, access to resource, and you thought you made that up all by yourself, right? So the goal is to replicate those genes. This is accomplished by producing as many reproductively viable offspring as possible. It doesn't matter that you reproduce. Your offspring have to reproduce. Otherwise, that's the end of the gene line, right? So it becomes a very important thing. So also we want to try and disseminate one's genes as widely as possible throughout the species gene pool. Because if everybody in this room just breathes, if I give you all tickets and send you to an island and say, run for it, guys, okay, reproduce, it's not going to be a very impressive gene pool in this room, right? It's not very diverse. How about if I take two of you and send you to Portugal, two to Tahiti, two, and now I say go crazy. Don't we wind up with a much more diverse gene pool? Which is going to be better to adapt to changing conditions, the diverse gene pool? So not only producing viable offspring, but diversify the bejeebers out of them. What if there were no differences in income or power, access to resources, between males that you were selecting from? An egalitarian society. By what criteria would male mates be chosen, ladies? The toilet seat thing? Okay. <laughs> okay, so it's not it's not access to, to, to wealth, it's not it's not power, and 
you say, well, I guess I'd have to go back to apparent health, wouldn't I? Well, we have to do that by deducing or just guessing it, right? And that's not a good place to be. What if you guessed incorrectly? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what if you make the bad choice? You know, too bad, so sad, so oh, there goes your genes. So you want to try and guess correctly, but we're not very good at just guessing genetic conditions, are we? So what's your next option? Yeah, modification of mating systems, right? Put your eggs maybe in a whole bunch of baskets. Let's take a look at a couple options here. Mating systems and overview. This is some terminology that we just need to talk about and understand so we can go on to the next, the next topic here. Monogamy. Mono, one, gammy, breeding, one breeding. This mean one mate. And monogamous mating systems, breeding with a single mate for a season or for life. What are some examples of that? Well, we look at, you know, some of the, it's the most common in birds. Uh, not terribly common in birds, we're learning very rapidly. Very rare in mammals. Less than 3% of mammals are monogamous. Got to be a reason. Okay? Almost unknown in sharks, fishes, amphibians, reptiles, and invertebrates. And some birds are monogamous. You know some in Michigan here, cardinals, right? They stay together for the whole season, forever. Waterfowl, ducks, geese, and swans, right? Same mate forever. And then they die, they pick up a new mate. Uh, albatrosses, the big seabirds, will continue with the same mate year after year for 25, 30 years. And I think the success there is because they only see each other for four and a half weeks per year. The keto successful relationship, okay? So they'll go on for 20, 25 years. Who said that? Can you erase that? Okay. So now monogamous breeding systems with a single mater season for life, we have a couple different types. You can have permanent monogamy. I just described those like in the albatrosses. That's one mate for your entire life. Very, very rare in nature. Or sequential, what we now call serial monogamy. You stay with that partner for that one season or to rear that one set of offspring, then you move on to the next one. From a genetic diversity standpoint, what might be your better option? Permanent or sequential? Sequential, right? Because you get a chance to diversify the offspring. So if you make a bad call the first season, second season you might make a better genetic call, right? And if you change mates every year, by the time you're done reproducing, haven't you diversified your offspring far greater than staying with one mate? Yeah, there are some disadvantages to doing that. Alimony. Anyway, so, okay. And then polygamy. Okay, polygamy, polygamy mating. So breeding with multiple mates during the same season. Minority of bird species, or so we thought, and almost all mammals. So all mammals very much are polygamous. So, you know, that's the excuse. Next time you get caught, you go, honey, I'm trying to be monogamous, but I'm working against the trend here. It won't fly, but I'll give you a few minutes to think of something better. Okay, so 97% of mammal species. Now, birds, we used to think, we're strictly monogamous until we started learning how to do DNA analysis. Uh, the great examples are uh, tree swallows. Tree swallows are very easy to study. You put up a nesting box, they come to it. You can watch them. You can tag them. They're easy to catch. It's, uh, so tree swallows were studied. And so, so it turns out that, okay, can I pick on you guys again? This is the penalty of front row. We have two pairs of tree swallows here. It's your turn to go out and get some insects because the ladies are sitting on the eggs. And you ladies are sitting on the eggs. And when you guys are out, you know what you're going to do? You're going to go and get some insects. But while you're out there, you're going to visit her, and you're going to visit him. You're going to make nice-nice, and then come back and go, Honey, I'm back with the insects. And you guys won't know the difference, right? And so it turns out, or I guess you can't have that, because they're sitting on the eggs, aren't they? Ladies in the next row, you are our barren swallows. You go out with these ladies and come back, and you go, Okay, I'll sit on the eggs now. Ladies, it's time for you to go back and insects. I guess what you're going to do. You're going to hook up with that good-looking swallow. You're going to hook up with that good-looking swallow. And then come back with a little smile and you'll be going, Honey, I'm home. And then you squeeze out a couple eggs. And you squeeze out a couple eggs. And you go, 
Oh, my beautiful children. Really? It turns out the birds just had us fooled. When they go out for milk, they're going out for cookies too, it turns out. And we can now do this by looking at the genome of the offspring. And you say, well, and why on earth would you bother sitting on her eggs that are probably from that guy? Because you haven't a clue. It's complete testosterone ignorance bliss, okay? Because what you're hoping is that you're going to raise whoever's eggs she's laid. One of them might be yours, okay? But he's also going to be an equally good father because he might be raising your offspring. As long as everybody pretends to be a good father or is a good father, isn't it a win-win? But half the eggs that she laid, this is better for you ladies, isn't it? Because if you just breed with this guy's what do you know about them? I'll tell you later if you want to cut some dirt. Okay? You don't know, right? So isn't it better to kind of work your way around? Absolutely. So what we thought were monogamous birds, now that we can do genomes, we realize, my God, you know, all those X number of eggs. The most important animal species in the world, which is the green sea turtle, the one that I work on, okay, the green sea turtle, the green sea turtles, she'll come up on the beach and she'll dig a little nest and she'll lay 100 eggs. She'll go back out for a week, come back, lay another couple hundred eggs. She'll do this for three, four months. But before she starts laying eggs, they'd come onto our reef, and the females would come and completely tramp around with anything with scales on it. She'd be out there, and they'd go, hey, big boy. And they'd actually get several males on top of the same female stacked up. I should show you a picture. And then when the bottom one would go out, they'd kind of fall down like a stack of pancakes, and they'd all just keep breeding. And this is when we'd capture them, because the males are going, oh, she's good looking scale. And we just pick them up, tag them, and they're good. They're going, mm. So it was really very cool. So, so in the week she's there, she could be bred by 10, 50 males. Wow, you reptilian. Tramp. <laughs> so, so we wonder, well, well, who is it that fertilizes her eggs? The first male, the second male, the third male, the fourth male, the fifth male? Yes. When she lays eggs, she mixes. Reptiles, sperm, mix. Think of the wearing blender. Okay, so what they do is they collect all the sperm, and then when she lays 100 eggs, five are from Fred, 10 are from Jerry, 15 are from Ben, and she lays every clutch is a mixed batch of eggs. Because what does she know about these turtles? She's known them for what? The time of copulation? Typical in males, what? Hour, hour and a half? Okay, so yeah, boom, it's gone, right? So that's all over. So doesn't that make sense? So by the end of the season, she's laid eggs from... 40, 50 males. That's cool. <laughs> so, we also have a type of polygamy called polygyny. See the root word? Gyno, like in gynecologist. This is where a male has multiple female mates. It's a special type of polygamy, right? Polygamy just means multiple mates. If there are multiple female mates, it's polygyny. If it's multiple male mates, it's polyandry. Very rare in nature. It's found in sea turtles, uh, gamete broadcasters, like corals, sea anemones, they just discharge their gametes into the ocean and let them to the, the figuratively to the wind. And that's how it works. The only truly polyandrous society we have is in Tibet, in the Tibetan Plateau. It's the only truly human polyandrous society. And these are nomadic yak herders. You know what a yak is? It's kind of like a Rastafarian cow, you know, like dreadlocks and stuff. And so, they, you know, they're, since they're pastoral, they move around above Timberline and they, they follow the grasses and they move their yaks all the time. But when you're yakking around like this, you've got to pick up your whole village and go with you. So they don't have, like, you know, motor homes. They, they're nomads. They pack everything up on the yaks, and they yak it on out of there, and they start all over. When you're nomadic, do you have the opportunity to accumulate a lot of material wealth? No, you don't. So when it comes time to, to uh, marry, let's say I have a daughter. It's time to marry her off. After all, she's 11. Okay? So it turns out that... The guys come over and they say, you know, we understand that, that you know, you're, you're, did you want to marry off your daughter? I go, oh, yeah, I do. What are you going to give me? 
And so you give me what's called a bride price, right? Which is that you, you give me something for my daughter. And you go, well, I'll give you two chickens. I go, two chickens? Look at her. She has most of her teeth. She can carry water. Go away. So you go back to your, your, your brother and you go, you know, old man Forbes won't give me the daughter for two chickens. And he goes, well, I've got a pig. So the two of you come back and go, we'll give you a pig and two chickens. Look at her. She has nine fingers. Go away. So you go back over here and you get your older brother and goes, old man Forbes won't give us his daughter. He goes, well, I've got a yak. So the three of you come and go, we'll give you a yak, a pig, and two chickens. She's yours. So? Why would I do that? You go, because you just want farm animals. No. <clears throat> okay? Because you three brothers came along and you came home and said, I've got this crippled guinea pig for your daughter. I go, go away. You came back with your brother. Now you came back with a parakeet with one wing and a crippled guinea pig. And everybody's been coming to my door giving me stuff for my daughter, but you guys had the best resources, didn't you? Why would I give my daughter to you? Sure, I get a, I get a couple ugly chickens and a handicapped pig and a baby yak, but what am I getting? Haven't I just ensured a better chance of my genes being passed on? All of you guys live in the same village. You're all competing for the same resources. You're all in the same environment. But who accumulated the material wealth? You guys did. Who's better adapted to the environment? You guys are. Who's better to feed my grandchildren? You guys are. It's benevolent. Okay? And this is why I think I'm leading a campaign as a father who has a daughter who's shopping around for a guy right now. I think that since my genes have already been diluted by 50% into my daughter, right, contaminated with half of my wife, I've lost by 50%, okay? Now, I've, and I meant that in a very loving Valentine's way, okay? So, <laughs> okay, so, so, so my daughter's only half mine. Now, she's going to breed with some other guy and dilute my genes 50% again. Shouldn't I have a say in my genetic outcome? Yeah, in a perfect world, okay? The best I can do is farm animals, right? But doesn't it make sense? And can't we understand why dowry systems and bride price systems evolve? Absolutely. Sorry, guys. Now, what about mating systems and primates? Are we really any different? Take a look in apes. The great apes are the, the chimpanzees, the orangs, the gorillas, and the gibbons. How many are polygamous? Both species of chimpanzees. The one species of orangutan, one species of gorilla, or two, depending on how we count them. And gibbons, all nine species, okay, happen to be monogamous. Why the difference? If, in fact, polygamy is such a great idea, because a lot of this is also an artifact of the environment that you live in. It turns out gibbons live in environments where the, the resources are a little more scarce, and it's very difficult for large groups of gibbons to live in one area. So because of the resource distribution, they kind of have to be monogamous, because there are other factors that come into play rather than what's the best system. We can take a look at all primates in general. We can see that, that polygamy definitely is, you know, appears to be the rule over here, and take a look at this. We take a look at polygamy in primates. 122 species are polygamous. 35 species are monogamous. And they're monogamous in part because of limitations of their environment to prevent large groups of them from living in an area because they're resource limited. So what's the take-home message? Well, polygamy is the overwhelming rule rather than the exception in nature. Monogamy is so rare we teach about it because it doesn't make a lot of good evolutionary sense in most situations. So you say, okay, well, so these human systems, right? Polygynous systems, polygynous, multiple females, right? Multiple females, obviously exist for the pleasure of the male in charge, or is it for procreation? Well, let's take a look here. Here's a, out of Matt Ridley's great book, The Red Queen. We take a look, we go back at the original, uh, the original six great empires. We look at the, the Incas, when I don't know how to pronounce it, Atahualupa, what is it? Uh, how's our historian, political scientist, anything? Okay. 
the big guy. Okay, so the big guy had 1,500. We'll call them mates, you know, for lack of a better term. The great, the great lords in that same society, in the same Aztec society, because they were lesser social status, had 700. What are called principal persons, you know, the, the head haunches, had 50. The leaders of the na nations within the Aztec Empire had 30. And look what happens. As you get less power, look what happens to the number of females. Now, this was by decree. Why? Because you wanted your underlings to have less fun? You wanted what? Less of their offspring that may compete for your power structure. You say, well, that's just a male saying that. Well, let's take a look. Let's take a look here. And what was the penalty? Okay. The penalty for violating the king's women, death to the man, death to his family, death to his servants, death to all the villagers and his llamas. Oh, you know, I'm okay with the fam the llamas. Okay, the llamas. And then the village is destroyed and stoned as if that was the final insult. So they took this kind of Seriously, right? She didn't mess with somebody else's wife. So let's take a look at the Egyptian pharaoh. If we go through the six great nations, hundreds of females for that, that pharaoh. We take a look at the Aztec ruler, Montezuma, 4,000 females. We take a look here at the Indian emperor, Yudhiyama, Yudhiyama 16,000 females. Right about now, the men are going, well, I kind of thought it was a good idea at the first couple, but you know, 16,000, okay? Folks, you better eat your post-toasties in the morning and a lot of iron to get this, okay? Chinese Emperor Fiti, 10,000 females. Okay, and then we have, look at this, the Babylonian king, thousands of females. You say, well, clearly these are men that just wanted to enjoy the pleasures of camaraderie. Well, really, let's take a look at this. Okay, here's how virtually all six of these nations managed their females. And I don't mean, and I, I mean this really with no respect as if they're chattel. I, and they were, in fact, sometimes treated as, but that's not my intent. So I'm not trying to have a levity on this. But let's take a look here at how they were treated to see whether they were there for procreation or whether they were there for the, the physical pleasures. They were all recruited, recruited or seized as prepubescent females to make sure that they never ever had reproduced. Because we didn't know about genetics back then. It was thought that if any male had inseminated or had sex with a female, that future children could be his at any time, right? So you want to make sure that nobody had that chance, okay? Females were held captive and guarded with eunuchs. You know what a eunuch is, right? No plumbing, okay? Induced no plumbing, okay? Why the eunuchs? Because you didn't want to run a chance that the females would give birth to other males. Wet nurses were utilized. We know what a wet nurse is, right? A female who's had given birth herself, she's lactating. It was a thing in Victorian England. So as long as they keep breastfeeding, they'll continue to produce milk. Why did they provide wet nurses for these females? To get them back into ovulating again, right? Because you could ovulate and reproduce in another cycle. And also, we found out that menstrual records were kept. Not because you had to worry about a woman who was in cycle if you didn't want to reproduce, but so you'd know what, when ovulation equal. They knew that back then. They had a really good window. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, you know, when the birds and the bees get together. Okay? Emperors copula uh, the emperors copulated in the Chinese dynasty only twice per day to ensure fertility. Because you don't want to just be going through the motions. You go, well, why not? Well, because you're trying to inseminate as many different females as possible. You want to make sure that each one, because you don't want to go through the whole lap and come back and say, oh, I'm fertile again today. But wait a minute, didn't I leave you yesterday? You want to make sure that everybody could be inseminated. So when you take a look at things like this, and that might be my last one, and all, all of these rulers, virtually all of these rulers were married in lifelong relationships, in monogamous relationships with their wife. Physical pleasure or reproduction? Reproduction, right? To do what? To maximize the genes. 
And we see this in all these primitive societies that most of the offspring were offspring of the ruler. Why? To maximize your genetic potential. And you say, well, they knew about evolution. No, I'm suggesting that it's in our genes to behave as such. So which mating system is best? <laughs> Depends who you talk to. Okay. Monogamy, the pros and cons. Okay. Well, advantages. In biparental systems with two parents, anybody who's been a single parent doesn't know to go any further in this conversation. You know as a single parent, it's hell on wheels. So in biparental systems, two parents share the responsible feeding, protection, and learned behavior for those of us who bother to teach our offspring. Okay? So two, you know, two, two, uh, two parents work really well. Increased probability that the young of the mating will reach maturity, right? If you have two parents protecting feeding, isn't there a better chance that your genes will make it to reproduce in the next generation? Sure. So it makes sense. Disadvantages. All genes are invested with one mate. What if you make the wrong genetic call? Mates' genes may not be fit or even superior for the environment. Mates may not be suitable parent for the species to rear the young. Maybe they have great stock, but just behaviorally, they're not participating in raising the young. You're back to being monogamous again. What are the advantages of polygamy? Increased probability of fit or superior gene combination. Right? Because it's just the law of averages here. Increased probability that one's genes will be continued in the gene pool. Effort may be spread way too thin between offspring or multiple mates if you're polygamous. Because if you're a species that requires, like in humans, where the, the children have to have learned behavior instilled upon them or taught, better syntax, that's hard if you're trying to do it once and let your kids. You know, for instance, like, you know, those who have multiple children, you know when you had your first kid? You know, get them from the hospital. You go in every hour to make sure that they're breathing, right? And you'd always check on them, you know. And then when the second kid comes along, you check on them and make sure, yeah, hell, we have another, okay? Because, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like, I look at, uh, we have some neighbors that have 11 children. And if you ever want to know who's starting the fire, who's swinging from the trees, who the ambulance is coming for, you know, right? Because out of 11, you're bound to get two to come out okay. Because you're what? Your parenting skills have to be proportionally reduced by the number of children. Any with multiple children knows that. So mating systems, what's our cost-benefit analysis then? Well, let's take a look. When the advantages of having access to resources for either one of the mates exceeds those of the parental care issue, so if it's better to get the resources and to worry about the extra mate, let's rather about the help of the mate. So if we're more interested in, in getting resources, then it's more beneficial to get resources than it is to have the extra parental care, what system is going to manifest itself? Polygamy. Because you pass what's called the polygamy threshold. The polygamy threshold is that, okay, you're giving me access to resources, but it's still a better decision for me to have a single mate. But now if I can get access to a whole bunch of resources by having multiple mates, sorry, cost-benefit analysis just pushes into the polygamy. And we see this in all different species. So which mating system benefits the species most, folks? Depends. Depends what we're looking at and what the species is. Clearly, polygamous uh, systems may benefit like chimpan uh, chimpanzees, but it certainly wouldn't benefit a gibbon because they live in a different type of environment. But on the whole across mammals, hands down, it's what? Polygamy or monogamy? Polygamy. Okay. Now, the next question is, how can the benefits of both polygamy and monogamy be realized? But let me ask you this first, because I don't know if I have a slide later on. Is there equal benefit to the female to be polygamous from an evolutionary perspective as there is to the male? Absolutely. There's equal benefit. Why do those female sea turtles nest with all those males? 
They do so at great risk because the males bite them. They can drown during the process, but there's a great genetic benefit for doing it. Both males and females share the same genetic evolutionary advantage to polygamy, without a doubt. So how can the benefits of both systems be gained? By being monogamous and being polygamous. Maintain a monogamous relationship with extraneous mates. Okay? So this is, this is me before I lost weight. Okay. Um, just because I have a Y chromosome doesn't mean I don't have feelings. Okay? So, so what happened in the leaders of all of these six empires? Didn't all of them maintain monogamous relationships? So they gained the benefit of that, but didn't they also have these harems? Would this not be beneficial to both males and females? Once again, I'm not suggesting you go out and tramp around tonight. I'm just saying, when we find ourselves struggling with these things in our society, which we're not very good at maintaining monogamous relationships over the long term, we know that infidelity runs rampant in our society, and we're saying, well, why is that? Well, too much MTV. Or might we look further back than that and say that this was the evolutionary force driving us to this behavior? It doesn't mean we continue to do it. It doesn't mean we don't try and stop it. But can we understand why it happens? To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>